Hello, you're listening to Sarah Jackman. On today's EG podcast, I'm joined by Property Litigation Association members Emma Pinkerton of Law Firm CMS and Mark Redding of Mishcon Solicitors and Property Bar Association member Bree Stevens-Hall of Hardwick Chambers for a look at diversity and inclusion in property law. Emma, Bree, Mark, thank you for your time today. Perhaps we can start by looking at the general picture in relation to DNI and property law. Just looking at recent surveys for the legal industry, for example, I can see that there there are gradual improvements over time, um, but there is still some work to be done. Does that reflect the property law sector? I mean, I can talk to the property bar and just general observation. I think, yes, it does reflect that there's been progress that the progress reduces as you go up seniority. But actually, I was doing a little exercise, having sort of established from all the reports that so far as the bar is concerned as a whole, it's about a third female. But if you then look at the level of silk uh, QC, then it's only, I think, 16.8% or something at the moment. But actually, when I had a look pleasingly in uh, one of the directories and looking at the representation of women in the list, in the silks list, it's got 24%. And for solicitors, I don't know if either of you check this, it's 39% female named individuals. So maybe we're just at the top. What do you guys think? No, I agree. I think we've probably still got quite a long way to go, but I think it's especially as I see, you know, juniors joining the team, trainees joining the team, I would say it's, um, and I think the, the stats reflect this as well, that actually entry into the legal profession and within the property sector, it, it's probably skewed towards uh, women in terms of joining. Um, but absolutely, as Bree says, as you get up higher up the tree, that that sort of thins out, which is obviously something that's pretty concerning uh, generally um, and something that we need to, to look at and, and, and address as a, a profession and as a, as a group of um, property practitioners. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And it's it's interesting because people used to say, oh, you know, the reason for this dynamic is because of the decisions that were made in the Stone Age, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And we're, we're dealing with the remnants of that now. But I think the thing that really needs to be focused on is the fact that these issues have come to the fore over the last decade. Measures have been taken to try and address them, but they've not perhaps been as successful as one might have hoped that they might have been. And so I think it's really drilling down into the reasons why, although progress has been made, it's perhaps not been made at the speed at which one would think that it would have been made at. And Mark, I'm old enough to know that for the bar, it's been roughly equal in terms of gender entry point for well over 20 years you know and so retention and progression is an issue and we haven't even touched on ethnicity which it seems to me is way 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 behind so far as the property sector is concerned. We can come back to have a look at ethnicity and and retention and some of those issues in a moment. But perhaps just looking then at at the success of the gender balance, particularly in in property. I know in property litigation and and particularly in terms of the PLA's membership, it's broadly half and half. I think it's 51% male and and 49% female. Tell me a little bit then about the reasons why the gender balance has been so well represented and how you've managed to attain that in property litigation. 
Well, I mean, I, I can speak only obviously from my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of that is probably a a natural like calls to like, I think, in a way. And so that's driven probably by leadership and driven by culture. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to work in firms where the culture has been one of um, inclusion. Um, and particularly at CMS, that is very much driven from the top down by our senior partner, uh, Penelope Warren, who, who is very vocal in relation to these issues. Um, the board split 50-50 men to women, property litigation in particular. Um, we've just made up our 11th partner this year, which unbalances our 50-50 split as it was until then. And that is also represented probably in terms of our senior associates and then down through through the rest of the of the cohort. And just in terms then of how that compares to the transactional side of real estate, what, what's the picture there? I think, it is a, I think it is a different picture for sure. In my team, there's a similar kind of representation of senior females. Actually, in my team, it's 75% female partners and 25% male. So slightly the other way. But uh, when that's compared, I think, to the transactional team, not just at my firm, but across you know, lots of my peers, male partners, male, male senior equity partners definitely make up the majority of those teams. And I mean, I think it's fair to say that most of those individuals are individuals that have been there for some time and are kind of legacy, so to speak, partners. And there is a changing dynamic, I think, when there are new fresh-blooded junior partners coming up that they tend to be from a more broad church I think than than the old guard but definitely there is still a a relatively high proportion of the old guard that are still in situ. I was going to say from a bar perspective when I look at where you find the majority of women and ethnicity and other others the weight is in publicly funded and it does seem to me that property is one of those areas where if you're coming into the privately funded work, it's not the most moneyed. It's not the most esteemed, if we put it that way. You'll see fewer women in areas like the very heavy commercial stuff. I think many people get into property through housing and things. And so one can see that it's sort of an entry point into the heavier, more chancery work. So I think that may be why the balance is a bit better at the bar. Mark, you you touched there on the sort of senior partnership and and the gender balance there. Just in terms of the picture, in terms of retention, is enough being done to support women up to the upper echelons of of management? I think there's been a real sea change in the last couple of years uh, within law firms generally to recognise that it wasn't just a, a case of getting women into the profession full stop. It was um, making sure that they had the opportunities to to work to their fullest potential um, throughout their their careers. And, you know, I know internally at my firm, there's a a real concerted effort uh, in order to not just get women who are of, you know, high standard to partnership, but also to get them to the senior equity. And there's a real recognition of the value that they bring to the business. And the fact that if they don't do so, just from a business perspective, 
the business is not realizing what it could realize you know putting to one side you know the interpersonal aspects of things which are more important but even looking at things from a purely business perspective there's recognition now that those are the things that must be done in order to make sure that people can reach their fullest potential effectively. Bree, you you touched on the picture in relation to ethnic diversity at, at the bar. What what are your impressions there? Is it as strong as it, it, it could be? No, it's it's a long way from. I think um, the sort of drive in terms of gender has travelled quite a long way, and the job is not complete. In terms of ethnicity, we're at very, very early stages. One hopes that lessons will be learnt from how one can encourage and support at entry level and the need at the same time to be thinking about progression and retention. Otherwise, you're just repeating and achieving it at the bottom and it never feeds through. But so far as the bar is concerned, it's still a very long way off. And as I've already mentioned, the vast majority of, I don't like the phrase, but BAME barristers are, or barristers of colour are working in the, the public sector, pu- publicly funded work, so less paid, well paid work. Um, and I suspect the solicitor's profession is better, but still a long way from resolved. Emma and Mark, are you able to pick up on that point? I mean, is the picture broadly the same in in the solicitor's profession or or is it slightly improved there? What are your impressions? Speaking from my personal experience, I think probably maybe slightly better, but probably about the same. Um, And I think a lot of that is is reflected in, in socioeconomic background of the applicants and probably even more so for the for the bar you know law firms have done a lot and are continuing to do a lot in terms of um, encouraging entrance by providing scholarships and bursaries um, um, you know supporting uh, people through uh, law school supporting them through university you know blind CVs unconscious bias training all of these great things which might not be the ultimate solution but at least are an attempt to try to encourage and support more um, applicants from varied backgrounds into the profession. I know one of the initiatives that CMS has is the apprenticeship scheme. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and and how that's really worked in the firm? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a a great success. Um, We are in our second year now, I think. So we've had the first rotation of apprentices Um, and we're not alone. I mean, a a number of law firms also offer legal apprenticeships. And from a business perspective, they are a great resource. You have a um, someone who joins normally straight from school, but also at any point thereafter. Um, and I mean, I take my hat off to them. They work. They work four days a week. They have one day of study, and they are studying their law degree at the same time as working. But that gives them a great insight into the business of law. Um, and from a um, a firm perspective gives you a great ability to work with someone and so it's a six-year course they do four years um, where they're studying and then doing their LPC and then they join as a trainee and then obviously are treated exactly exactly the same as any of our other trainees they've graduated from with a law degree um, but I think they'll have a, an advantage head and shoulders over those trainees because they'll know the firm they'll know how law works they'll have had that on-job experience um, yeah I, I, I think it, it is a, a bit of a it's a bit of a game changer, I think, for opening up that career progression 
I mean, we've always had legal executives who've been able to go through and paralegals have been able to go through. But it's this is this is um, another avenue which which is open to uh, to people to join the profession without having to incur those huge uh, student debts that they would otherwise otherwise have to be dealing with. It's a very clear declaration of intent about where their future is in a way that being a legal exec isn't necessary. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mark, sorry, I interrupted you before. Let's let's go back to you and just pick up on your point. No, not at all. I mean, what I, what I was going to add, and it, it's it's a different route, but what law firms have now that they haven't had previously is the ability to obtain external assistance, I guess, in relation to their recruitment processes from people that are real experts in their particular sectors. And so what you've got now, for instance, in relation to graduate recruitment applications, um, and I'm sure there are various companies that do this, but there's one that's called uh, Rare Recruitment. And what it does is when an applicant applies, it asks them some socioeconomic questions, um, they have access to that data. And what that does is it comes out with a, a number in the end, which is a score. But what that does is it factors or it contextualizes the achievement of the individual within the structure of you know uh, the scenario that they've they've grown up in so if they were the top two percent in a in a not great school but performed exceptionally well then you know an a grade from uh, that student might be worth more than an a grade from a, another student that uh, has gone to a, a grammar or a, a fee-paying school so that type of tool is really useful to give insight into to firms and make sure that um, everyone's getting kind of looked at in a in a kind of overall way as opposed to looking at it in a very specific traditional sense the other type of uh, tool that law firms have is is not from a graduate recruitment perspective because going back to the point i was making before you know the changes are made now and it might take 10 years say for those changes to really be seen but what another tool that the law firms have got is in terms of their kind of current fee earners, uh, the ability to go out to specialist organisations when they have roles available to see whether there are candidates who might not necessarily come to them through traditional recruiters or traditional paths that might be suitable for the roles that they have. Um, so there's a company called Powerful Media, for instance, who've got a specialist recruitment limb. So when we have a vacancy for a fee earner we can go to them and say have you got anyone on your books that um, would be suitable for this role and they uh, their kind of client base is of African descent so that means that we've got a route to people that might not necessarily come through the tr traditional routes and from a business perspective obviously that's a great thing because it means that you're getting the talent in the broadest kind of most pervasive sense and if your client base is as broad and uh, and pervasive as that, it means that you stand a great chance of being able to service your clients in the best way. We've talked about leadership and some of the other ways in which you can help retain talent within the industry. But what about things like mentoring and, and the day to day? I mean, what, what can be done to really support people throughout their careers and, and to really foster an inclusive environment? 
I mean, I think there are a couple of things like, as you say, mentoring is one of them. Some uh, A scheme that we've introduced um, within the team or widely is blind allocation of work so that you're not automatically defaulting to the same people time and time again. And actually, I think probably COVID has been a blessing. Let's call it that because we have to call it something at some point without crying in that regard, because actually it's shown that um we can all work together in different places with different people and it's sort of helping to break down some of those barriers um, because you're not just standing up and looking over at the person who sits in the pod next to you you're having to think a little bit more widely and and work with other people and I think sort of the that blind allocation is a is a really useful tool um in that in that regard I was going to mention reverse mentoring which you know is for, is for the benefit of seniors but in terms of encouraging them to understand a different and much wider perspective and think about how they can ensure their organisation is actually one in which all sorts of different people can thrive. That is hugely valuable. And I think, you know, things like, so last night for the Chancery Bar Association, I took part in what I think for the bar was the first ever event around the menopause, you know, which is something that hits 50% of the population. And for many women, it hits at you know, a point where they're really trying to drive their career forward, uh, post-career breaks and whatever. And, you know, actually demystifying that stuff, making it a conversation you can have and having policies in place that ensure that as a from the business case point of view, as has been discussed, you're still getting the best out of them because you're supporting them through that. Culture is key, I think, on that, isn't it, in terms of, of all those sort of things. And I think looking at that as well, data is also key. Um, and if you have a culture where you are happy to share your data, then the two can come together and actually ensure that you're make, making all of the right choices for all of the right reasons. So, you know, those two things fall in together, I think. Mark, is, does that broadly chime with, with your thinking and experience? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the thing with mentoring is that if it's just general a general idea of mentoring without any proper thought behind it it's never going to be very useful um, it, it requires upfront effort to work out what you're trying to achieve from the mentoring scheme and what the men you know both ways you know what you're as, as the mentor what you're intending on delivering and why you think you have the skill set to be able to assist people and from the mentee's perspective making sure they're committed to the process they know what they're signing up for and you have a clear understanding of what they want so something like a, a, a back to work mentoring scheme after maternity leave for instance where you've got a mentor who's been through um, having a having a child during their career and can impart you know real pearls of wisdom to someone that's coming back uh, and provide that support I, I think you know I, obviously I'm, I'm speaking from a male perspective but uh, you know I, I can see a real value in that for for someone that's coming back and thinking I don't know how to deal with difficult conversations or client demands or, or whatever it might be um, and to try and understand the strategies that the mentors deployed what's worked what hasn't and then that informs the person returning as to, you know, how they can approach things. So I, I think mentoring is great, but in my experience, both kind of in the firm and out of the firm, there's got to be that thought process needs to be undertaken at the beginning. Otherwise, it falls apart and it's, it doesn't really add very much value. Yeah. 
can I just pick up on Mark's mentoring about returning to work and being a man? Because one of the things we've introduced is um, mentoring for people having parental leave. And we brought the timing forward so that we took the initiative and asked men if they wanted uh, a parental leave mentor as soon as we know there's a new child coming into their family, which means we're having discussions with them about taking meaningful parental leave. Whereas before they wouldn't have come to us and they'd have just worked on the basis I can't afford it or it will damage my career, which, of course, is what the women were saying 10, 15 years ago. Um, so encouraging them to actually engage with it more because yeah. why not? They're parents. That's a really interesting point. I know, Bree, that you spoke to my colleague Jess recently um, in the piece that, that he wrote as part of the EG interview, and you touched there on your work for Freehold. Um, what are the, the key things that you've picked up from being involved with that organisation, just in terms of inclusivity and, and fostering a strong working environment where people can have open conversations? I think that two key things are about understanding that inclusion has to operate in relation not only to visible difference so can't be a hundred percent sure but usually you have have a good sense about someone's gender or at least their gender expression and a good sense about their ethnicity but then their sexual orientation you know people always say to me where are the lesbians Brie well you know they're dealing with being a woman in in a male dominated industry why would you choose to chuck in the additional element that you're a gay woman so they operate differently as factors and the decisions you make about them and use up different energy and bandwidth that you want to be focusing on your career so so that's one thing and the other key thing is about allyship and you know the work that we've done in freehold whilst it's been a network of lgbt property professionals there's been a huge amount of support that has been offered by organizations and key individuals seniors in organizations that were prepared to be allies and you know i'm then then very aware of being using a situation where i as a white woman at the bar have power and agency using that to support my BAME colleagues. So I think those for me have been key things, understanding the visible and the not visible um, and how it operates and allyship to drive an inclusive culture. Just from my perspective, as someone who's kind of been a member of Freehold under, um, you know, Bree and others stewardship over the years, uh, you, you, I think really you know, when I joined, I was maybe a year or two qualified and the ability to go and just meet like minded people where you can be your whole self from the from the get go. And they can understand what you're about. and You can understand what they're about and you can see whether there's synergies for the two of you to work together in the future. I mean, it was just such a refreshing thing to be part of. And, you know, it's, it's something that I would really encourage anyone, you know, listening to this to, to, to become part of um, if, if you feel that, that that would be of benefit to you. It's, it's surprising the energy that 30 seconds am I editing my language do I do I say this how am I going to phrase that how much energy that sucks out of you and I only realized that when I was in a professional context that was LGBT and realized how much more I was enjoying all the networking. So just then to, to bring everything together, 
I mean, there's there's obviously a number of initiatives in place and and um, organisations where where people can access support and so on. In in terms of the progress that that is happening, is it going fast enough? Where where would you like to see it a few years from now, say in ten years? Where we don't have to have this conversation, where we don't have the labels, but the space just works and flexes for whoever everyone is and allows them to fulfil their potential. I think it's going to take more than 10 years, but that's what I'd love. Got to start somewhere though, right? So we've, yeah. we're, we're, I think that's, it's, it's, it's exactly, I, I don't think I can put it any better than that, but we've got to start the conversation and keep it going for everyone so that we have a representative profession, a representative of society, a profession that's representative of society. I think as well, because going back to, you know, I've said it a couple of times, this lead in, it's going to be so important to continually review and scrutinise what's going on. You know, people can't sit on their laurels because, you know, there's been a 5% increase here or a 5% increase there. Um, there needs to be a real long term commitment to it to make sure that, you know, that the standards that have been set have been adhered to um, across the board going forwards. And it's not it's not reflective of a moment in time where we pat ourselves on the back and say, well done, and then things revert back to how they were before. It's got to be a, you know, a forever commitment to it, really. And just in terms of the pandemic, I mean, we, we touched on, on it a little bit, but do you see any sort of immediate changes in sort of working practice and, and so on in, in terms of the effect of the pandemic? Will, will there be some positives that we can draw? I mean, Emma, you, you touched on something, but is, is there anything else we can take from this period? I'd like to hope so. I'd like to hope that we can continue to work flexibly because fundamentally most of us, lawyers at least, record every six minutes of our working day and it's very obvious when you've recorded the time and not done the work Um, and most of us work in environments where we are trusted to do that work when it when it works for us and it's been shown I mean I, I look back when I came back from my first maternity leave and the battle I had to have a one day working from home when then I felt as if you know I, w- I was being scrutinized for that day that I was working from home and I never really didn't work on that day but everyone is now experiencing that and we're all working in different patterns and some people get up early and they do their work before four o'clock and other people get up later but it gets done and all of the clients have been happy and it's been a phenomenally busy year and there's been no let up in the quality and standard of the work that's being produced despite the fact that we're not in the office so I'd like to hope that this has given everyone the ability and trust that that can work when we go back to back to the office however that that is. Yeah I, I like to think that we will be less precious about this is my professional persona and that will not have any awareness that I have a life and I'm a real person beyond this. You know, we've we which I'm not advocating continuing have seen into each other's homes, <laughs> um, all sorts of people that we wouldn't have dreamed inviting into our homes have have come in through Zoom, but also children, pets, you know, there's, there's a much richer sense and I hope we hold on to it of us all being people with a full life that's going on around us whilst we're doing our work and hopefully therefore being more amenable and and flexible working but also just having more awareness that people have other stuff going on. 
I think from from my perspective, it's not a kind of change, but I think what the whole kind of lockdown situation and working from home situation has made me realise is actually how much I like my colleagues and how much you know I like spending time with them. And I think beforehand it was very easy to get you know stuck on the hamster wheel and you know you, you take them for granted um, and you you perhaps don't kind of treat them with the same enthusiasm that you should. But I think really actually I I think when I go back there'll be a kind of renewed energy about being around my team and my clients again in a kind of an in-person situation and um, kind of really relishing that fact. I'm with you on that Mark. Well thank you all so much for your contributions today that's a really nice positive note to end it on. Mark, Emma, Bree, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. You've been listening to Sarah Jackman speaking to Bree Stevens-Hall Mark Redding and Emma Pinkerton. For more on DNI, see the EG archive at egi.co.uk.